We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Good stuff. It's good to hear. There's lots going on in the life of the church, um, so it's good, it's good to do that. Right. Alex and Camille, can you just get up and get some Bibles? Because we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4. And so if you'd like a Bible so you can follow along, then stick your hand in the air. And Alex and Camille are going to bring you one to you in your seat. Keep your hand up until it arrives. It will get to you um, shortly. And also just to mention that if uh, your, your hand is in the air because you just don't own a Bible, then you can write your name in this Bible. You can keep it as a free gift. It's yours. You can have it. It will bless you and do you good. Um, and it will be our pleasure uh, to be able to give that to you. So uh, we're in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth is like the eighth book of the Bible. So you can like work your way along. And uh, it's, n- it's near the start, just after Judges. And um, as a church, we've been going through these four chapters in the book of Ruth um, to, to read and to hear about God's redemption plan, how he is at work in our lives and in, just in the, in the normal mundaneness of our lives, how he is at work, how he is moving. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, we can trust that God is at work, that he um, has authority and a plan for our lives and that he is moving, is weaving into the fabric of all the things we do. And, uh, and, and this book of Ruth is a great example to be able to show us that. Nothing spectacular particularly happens in the book. There's no big miracles or, and major events. It's just about a family who have gone through a tragedy and are seeking God in it. And he works amazingly through ways. And we've been able to take encouragement for our lives during this season. We've been able to see how Ruth has been, uh, she is a Moabite woman, which means that she comes from a place from Moab. Moab is a place whereby the people there are the enemies of the people of God. They are called the Israelites, the Moabites are called the Moabites, and they're like enemies. The Moabites have all sorts of horrendous practices like child sacrifice and all sorts of like weird sexual, sacrificial kind of worship, and they are detestable to the Israelites because they see that as wrong, which it is. And so, yeah, just to clarify... And, um, and so there's all sorts for, for a, a person from Moab to be associated with the Israelites will come all sorts of shame, all sorts of hardship. It would be really easy for that person to feel like under a, a bit of a cloud. And not only is Ruth a Moabite woman, she's also a widow. And she was married for 10 years before her husband died. And in those 10 years, she didn't have any children. So she's likely to be infertile. She's got a widow who's infertile, who comes from a horrendous background. And yet, she clings to a lady called Naomi. Naomi is a lady from Israel, from a little town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the house of bread. And in the first few chapters, we found out how she, um, the, the house of bread had no bread. There was a famine in the land. Difficulty came on the land. And so she left with her husband, Elimelech. They went to Moab and they settled roots there. Whilst they were there, Elimelech, her husband, died. And so did her two sons, leaving just Naomi and Ruth, um, who came back to the house of bread. 
in chapter 2, we found out that um, God, like we can see these things about how God is at work because it uses phrases like, it just so happens as they returned, oh, the famine is gone. The harvest has come. It just so happened that um, as a foreigner in the land who, would need, who didn't have a husband, she was essentially like um, someone who's homeless and she needed to beg for food. And the way for begging for food was to go behind the harvesters, the workers, and pick up any grain that was left over and fell to the ground. And it just happened that she was doing that in a field of a man who was really righteous and he was a good man, and he, he looked after his work as well, and he protected her from uh, hardship and from abuse from any of the other workers. And it just so happened that that man was a relative of Naomi, and that he, he's called something, called like a guardian redeemer or a kinsman redeemer. And that, what that means is that he is able to marry, well, he's able to buy the land that was Elimelech's, and therefore marry anyone who kind of belongs to the land, which would be Ruth, and restore to her all that she'd lost. But at the end of last week, chapter 3, we found, well, we found out during chapter 3 that Naomi had a plan for Ruth to try to kind of pursue Boaz and let him know that she, she wants her, she's, in, she's interested. And so she does this thing where she, um, at the end of the harvest, the, the men all kind of work in the storehouse. They, they sleep in the storehouse to protect all the grain from being robbed by other people. And so she went down to the storehouse. She wasn't meant to, but she went down there. And she, um, like his bed sheet, she kind of covered over herself. And, she, and that was a bit weird. And we found out that she used this phrase, because in chapter 2, Boaz blessed her and said, may the Lord bless you and may he spread his wings over you like, like a refuge. And so what she does is she uses that exact same Hebrew word and comes to him and kind of spreads his garment over her and, and essentially says, I believe that the Lord is going to use you to be my refuge, to protect me, to look after me. And Boaz is honoured by this because Boaz is quite a lot older than her. And he thought that she would have gone after people her own age. And, and, so he's, and he says, yeah, I will do it. But she has to wait. Right at the end of chapter 3, Naomi says, you have to wait now. And you have to wait and see, will he settle the matter? And we, we looked at last week, what does it mean when we're in a difficult circumstance or situation where we, we trust God is going to move in a certain way, but we're called to wait we're called to wait and allow God and his timing and, and his plan to come through. That's where we were left up. And so now we're going to look at, does Boaz settle the matter? Does he redeem? Does he buy the land? Does he restore to Ruth and Naomi all that they'd lost when they left? And so that's what we're going to read. That's what we're going to find out. And this morning, I've called my talk, There is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer. And let's find out how, how, how this impacts us today. So we're going to read through it. As, as we read through it, I'll probably like just comment to help us just understand about the context and the background. So I might make a few comments as we go. And then I'm going to put out a few things that are important for us today. So we ended up chapter three. She's waiting. And chapter four starts this way. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian... Re- uh, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So this is the person that, um, so the kins, oh, sorry, let me just pause, a bit more context just to help you. So a kinsman redeemer 
if he um, purchases the land that used to belong to someone else, he has to marry the, the people that kind of belong to that land. So he has to marry Ruth, the widow, who that land should have belonged to. But if they have any children, then that child does not count as the kinsman's child. It counts as the dead husband's child. So all the inheritance will end up going to the kind of dead husband's household and will stay there. And if there was any like debt owed, like belonging to the land, then he would absorb the debt and he would absorb any kind of uh, anything else that is attached to the land. So sometimes it's a good thing because if the land was fertile and rich and there's lots of money in that kind of household, then it's like, yeah, I'll redeem that. But if there isn't, then it's, it's a bit more tricky and difficult. And before Boaz, there is one other person. So in, in that kind of context, there's like a, you know, we have next of kin. There is a next of kin who is in line to redeem, to restore that household before Boaz. And so Boaz has now gone and found this guy and he's just come along and Boaz says to him, come over here, my friend. And sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. That's her dead husband. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I, so I know. So I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you and I am the next in line. And again, you might think, oh, why has he got the ten elders there? You need to imagine like a court scene. He's, he's essentially kind of brought this, these people to court, this person to court, and saying, hey, in front of the kind of town elders, in front of the, the kind of um, the panel, in front of the judges, are you going to settle this matter or not? They're kind of witnesses to this. And he said, yeah, I'll redeem it. And we're all thinking, oh no, I thought Boaz was going to do it. And he's like, yep, yeah, I'll do that. And then Boaz, because he's cunning, he says, well, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, that's absolutely fine, but you need to know that you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So that's the whole, because that's how it all works. And so he's just, just so you're aware, if you buy this land, yes, it sounds like a great proposition. That's going to be fantastic for you because you get a bunch of land. And, but you need to know that if you buy it, you need to then marry Ruth, who don't forget is a Moab, Moabite. And that is someone who, remember, is detestable to these people because of their kind of practices. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I can't do it. I I don't know if I've clicked on. Yeah, I did. I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, you can help me. I'll try to remember. No, you just do it. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I can't redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Again, just pause. Why would he endanger his own estate? Because... If he redeemed this land and he redeemed Ruth, then his, by association, his credibility, his status, his reputation amongst the rest of the people drops. Why? Because he's married a Moabite. And, and he, he, he's looking at the situation and he's like, the cost is too high. 
not interested. He walks away. And it gives us a bit of context in that. It says, now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Thankfully, we don't do that today. If you were doing that with me, my shoes would be very smelly, I can assure you. But anyway, so the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal, making it a legal transaction. So he is now passing over his right to be the redeemer from himself to Boaz. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Marlin. That's the two sons. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Rachel and Leah gave birth to many of the sons of Israel. Um, who, which, yeah, cause, yeah. who together built up the family of Israel. May, may you have standing in Ephrathah, which is the Ephrathites, which is like the tribe that they come from, and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah. All these, these people are all people that were kind of fertile, that had uh, a long lineage, that are well respected in the tribe of Israel, that had all the sons that have given birth to the whole of this tribe. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive. She's gone from someone who is infertile to someone who has given birth. And she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life, he will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. I mean, this must have been such an amazing moment for Naomi. Having, you know, right at the start of the chapter, just four chapters ago, having lost everything, lost her husband, lost her children, um, having had nothing. And now she, everything that she lost has been restored to her. It says, the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. The women living there said that. They, they praised God. They were delighted. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. That's the word of the Lord. So, there you go. The, I love genealogies because throughout the Bible, whenever you see a genealogy, you kind of, 
you're, you're getting to the end of a section and you're about to enter into a new section. And in fact, after Ruth, you start to get into 1 Samuel, which is like this new section of God's providence and prosperity and the people of God growing from strength to strength and, and the Lord returning to the land and then being a king established and uh, King David reigns on the throne. And so as you, get, as you find genealogies, you kind of close in a section and open in a new section and it's like a launch pad off. And so as we close this section, what is God kind of saying to us through this this kind of love story through this romantic story of these two getting together what would he want to say to us through this chapter I believe he wants to say there is a redeemer there is one who restores who renews who is able to work mighty things in our lives and we are like Ruth and Naomi we need redemption and we need restoration and we've called this whole story the whole uh, series God's redemption plan and I haven't actually gone in too much to what that redemption plan is and so I want to do that now you know Boaz went to court to make a way for Ruth to legally have her own name and her own standing have a, her own identity to have her own permanent place to recall home he gave her a new home a new identity a new standing in society he honored her and lifted her up he upheld her and do you know what in exactly the same way Jesus he comes to the court of heaven before God and he makes a way for people who are in sin and in shame who have lost things to be able to stand before God not as people who are who are full of blame and shame, but actually people who are righteous, who are standing before him. Because the Bible tells us that all have sinned, all have fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us have messed up. You can just go through the Ten Commandments. How far will you get? You know, okay, it says things like do not murder, but then Jesus says, well, don't even think hateful thoughts in your heart. You ever done that? You ever thought hateful thoughts against someone else in your heart? The Ten Commandments, one of them says, don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, don't even think about someone lustfully in your mind that you're not married to. Have you ever thought about someone who you're not married to lustfully? The Bible says, do not steal. The Bible says, do, not, do all sorts of different things. All, all of us have fallen short. Don't hold anything as in place of God in your life. Don't idolise anything more than you do God. All of us do these things. We've all fallen short. And the Bible tells us that the punishment of this sin is death. It's separation from God. It's life without him. And it's, it's life in famine. It's life in barrenness. It's, it's life separated from him. It's life in darkness. It's life away from him. And he calls us all to come to him the bread of life, the one who can restore, the one who can redeem, the one who alone can rescue, the one who alone can save as we've been singing, because who alone can save themselves? The one who is able to free us of our guilt and our shame, who's able to give us a new name. Jesus is able to redeem you, to restore you, so that before God, you can have standing. Before God, you can have dignity. Before God, you can have honour. Before God, you can know that actually you're able to approach him. You don't have to shy away. There might be all sorts of things that have happened in your life, all sorts of circumstances you've walked through. There might be things that others have done to you or things that you have done to others that you feel embarrassed by or shameful for. And there is one, there is a redeemer called Jesus and he wants to make a way to 
break those chains, to cut those things off, that you might come into a relationship with God, that you might know him, that you might know restoration and reconciliation, that you might be able to stand with him and call him friend and talk to him. And he does that and he, he makes a legal transaction, transaction and the theological word is called justification um, or justified. I've been justified before the Lord. So a way of remembering that is just as if I'd never sinned. He is able, when we stand before God, right, our sin and our shame, it separates us from him. But what Jesus does, when he pays the price on the cross, when he dies on the cross, he pays the price for our sin, he pays the price for our shame, so that we no longer have to pay it. He makes a legal transaction in that day, so that when we stand before God, it's just as if we'd never sinned. It's just as if we'd never messed up. It's just as if we hadn't done these things, because we are made pure and clean and righteous even though we mess up what God sees is Jesus robe of righteousness on us instead of our muck and our dirt amen and and so the question is have you received his redemption plan in your life have you received his grace have you received his mercy have you received his love do you know that he cares for you do you know that he loves you Do you know that he's for you? Do you know that he promises never to leave you or forsake you? That even now, in the midst of whatever you might be going through, whatever you might be facing, you can know his presence and his goodness in your life. You know, for Boaz, redeeming Ruth was costly. It was so costly, the other guy, he's like, oh, I can't do that. That's too much. That's too much for me to do. But Boaz was righteous and he was willing to pay the price of the cost. He was willing for his status, his standing in the community, for everything he has to decrease in order that Ruth would increase. He was willing to let go of all those things that some of us hold dear in order that Ruth would be honoured and dignified and have inheritance and have a future and a hope. In exactly the same way, Jesus left all the riches of heaven, but lowered himself to this earth. He was born as a baby, out of wedlock, to a couple in Bethlehem. And he, he lived his life. He loved God. He loved others. And yet he was ridiculed. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was betrayed. Ultimately, he was abandoned by his friends, those ones who he... he, he Um, served with and worked with for many many years he ultimately paid the price by dying on the cross and the bible tells us it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and scorned its shame he didn't mind he decreased so that you could be honored and lifted up and dignified whenever someone redeems someone else it costs them massively and yet why do they do it they're willing to do it because they can, they, want to, they can see fruitfulness and goodness and blessing and they want to give that to the person. It costs to redeem someone. It costs to care for them. It costs to look after them. But in Jesus, we have someone who's willing to do it, to pay the ultimate price in our stead. And a good question to ask might be, why would Boaz do it? Why, why would he do it? Why would he go to these lengths? Why wouldn't he just marry someone else? Another person in, in Israel, one born in the line of lineage of the people of God. Why wouldn't he do that? Why would he pick this Moabite woman to marry? 
Why, why would he restore her? And um, I wonder if it's because he saw what his father did and he decided to follow suit. See, Bethlehem was a place where the marginalised and the outsiders and those people on the edge could always come and they would be shown hospitality and they'd be shown grace and mercy and fruitfulness. And in fact, if you track Bethlehem throughout the Bible, where it appears in the Bible, you'll always see it's a place where people can go and they can find sustenance and care and hope. And anyway, uh, so his, his uh, dad, Salman, he ended up marrying a, a lady called Rahab. Rahab was someone who lived in Canaan. Again, who, it was a place where the people of God were going into invade. And she lived in a place called Jericho. And she lived on the outside wall of Jericho. And by, she was a prostitute. She was an enemy of God. She was a prostitute. And she lived on the outer wall. That told us that she was marginalised. That she was an outsider. When an enemy attacked, whose house are they going to hit first? It's Rahab's. She's on the outside wall and anyone else. That's where all the kind of lowly people in society would live. And Rahab was someone who, when some Israelite spies went into Jericho to check out the land, she showed them hospitality. She brought them in. She looks after them. And they said to her, hey, when we come to invade, we're going to look after your house and anyone who's in it. And so what happens is they, they go back out and then the people of God, they end up marching around the walls of Jericho seven times. People sometimes call it the Battle of Jericho. It wasn't a battle. They just marched and sang and praised God. And then the whole of Jericho fell, apart from one house, Rahab's house. And everyone who was in that house was restored. This Canaanite prostitute was brought into the people of God. And Salmon, who you can read in two Chronicles, no, one Chronicles chapter two, he was a prince of Judah. And Salmon saw this Canaanite prostitute and he decided to marry her. And he restored her. He brought her in, this outsider, this marginalised person, this person who was one of the enemy. He brought her into his household and he married her. And together they had a son called Boaz. Boaz saw what his father was doing and did likewise. So when he had the opportunity, when he saw an outsider, a marginalised person, someone who's one of the enemy of God, he treats her with righteousness and respect and dignity and he brings her in. And then he gives birth, he then, they then have Obed and Obed has Jesse and Jesse has David and God uh, works amazing things through that family. And do you know what, that's not the only time that this kind of interplay happens. Because later on, a few, about a thousand years later, maybe one and a half thousand years later, there's a guy called Joseph. It's Jesus' dad. And Joseph, he's engaged to a woman called Mary. And he's probably looking forward to it. And Mary finds out that she's pregnant. And Joseph, he wants to do the right thing. And so he's like, well, I want you to go and be with the guy that you've gone and slept with. Because he knows he hasn't. So he, choose, he says, hey, why don't I just divorce you quietly? Because he wants to uphold her honour and respect. He doesn't want to go around telling everyone, oh, look what she's done to me. And he wants to honour and respect her. And he, he says, hey, why don't I divorce you quietly so you can be with a man? But then what happens is that an angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him and says, no, no, she hasn't cheated on you. She hasn't messed up. And what he does then, he ends up marrying her. Well, he ends up first having the child and then later on marrying her. She was someone who in that culture, in that situation, having a child outside of wedlock could have been scorned and shamed. But rather than her taking that, Joseph takes it on himself. And he says, you know what? No, I will do it. 
I will lower my status to be married to you and engage with you. And you know what? Jesus, when he was born, throughout his life, he got mocked for being someone who was born outside of wedlock. Oh, who are your mum and dad, Jesus? People used to mock him. You can read about it in the Gospels. And they would mock him for that. And yet, for all of these men, Salmon, his association with Rahab would have cost him, but it honoured Rahab, dignified her. Boaz's association with Ruth would have cost him, but Boaz was more interested in honouring her, dignifying her. Joseph's association with Mary would have cost him, but he was more interested in honouring her and dignifying her. And Jesus' association with you cost him. It cost him his life. But he loves you so much. And he wants to honour you and dignify you and lift you up and seat you with him and show his love and his blessing and his grace and his kindness on you because he loves you. Do you know it? Do you believe it? He is so faithful to you. He's so good to you. And he's got a wonderful redemption plan. And he wants, to, he wants you to know it in your life. He wants to breathe in your life and he wants you to tell others. He wants to invite you to into this wonderful relationship with him and to trust him. And so that when you're working through your life and you're thinking, God, do you really love me? Do you really care about my situation? You can say, yes, I do. There is a redeemer. And he lives. His name is Jesus. And he's above all things. He's got the name above every name. And you can trust him. And you can know and you can believe that he, he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to forsake you. He's a wonderful redeemer. Amen. I want to, um, just before we finish... There's, a, there's another question to ask, and that is that, so in this story, not only does Ruth have all sorts of inheritance and she ends up, all the things that went wrong to her and Naomi get restored, we see that all come through, but the question is, what happens when we go through life and we don't see that immediate change? For us, we, we go from chapter three to chapter four, it's like one day to the next day it's all good but what happens when we're living in the waiting moment in the end of the chapter three moment when Naomi says wait my daughter wait for God's timing wait for what he will do what do we do in that waiting can we trust God can we know his faithfulness and his hand in us when we're waiting for him to move when we're waiting for him to flourish I believe we can but rather than me telling you we can, I want you to hear a story of how actually God has been faithful and walking through a difficult period with someone in our church. Um, and I believe it's going to encourage you. So can we, Amy's going to come and share, and she's going to share something that's really personal to her. So I want us to really encourage her, to welcome her, and, uh, and to listen to all that she's going to share with us. Let's welcome her up. Thanks, Chris. Double whammy of me today, guys. <laughs> so yeah, I've been asked this morning to share a testimony of how God has been faithful to me in the recent years. It's something that I'm still very much going through, and some of you know that. And God is still very much working through the situation. And I hope that by me sharing, that it will be a source of encouragement uh, that God is good and that he never forsakes us. 
So before I get started, I just wanted to give a little courtesy heads up that I will be speaking about infertility, and I can appreciate that is a sensitive subject. So my story starts back in July 2020. I found myself being rushed to hospital after experiencing severe abdominal pains that persisted for 48 hours. After tests, they discovered the pain was caused by an 18-centimetre cyst that was on my right ovary, which had twisted on itself four times. Within two days of being admitted, I had an emergency operation and was prepared to lose my right ovary along with the cyst. I will add that previous to July, I had experienced four bouts of this really intense pain, um, last time being the worst. Um, however, the doctors misdiagnosed this for the norovirus and IBS. This is the first time, that was the first time I ever had been to hospital. Um, and it was in that weird in-between lockdown, non-lockdown time in 2020. I don't know if you guys can remember that distant memory. And most definitely we weren't allowed guests. I was on my own. I prayed a lot. And luckily, due to technology and reliable Wi-Fi, I was able to keep in contact with my life group, with Andrew, um, and my friends who covered me in prayer. But I will always look back on how amazing the nurses were and how I laughed so much for, more than I ever thought I would in hospital. When I look back on the operation, I know God was protecting me. There was no doubt. There was a real worry that the cyst could have burst due to its size. Also, when I was in the operation, after removing the right-hand situation, that's what I call it, they discovered another cyst that was on my left-hand ovary. Again, that was at a sturdy eight centimetres in size. I always laugh because I'm like, how is that even possible? Um, so to give you context, I was told a cyst the size of the ovary, or over, uh, was deemed an emergency. And just to give you a context, I don't expect you guys to know the size of an ovary. Uh, it's approximately four centimetres, so it was quite urgent. So I will forever be grateful it wasn't more complicated than it was already. Uh, the surgeon did an incredible job to remove the cyst from my left ovary with the hope that it would recover and my ovary would function fully. My recovery went incredibly well, considering I had a major operation. And due to the size of the cysts, I had to have a C-section, which means I have a hip-to-hip -hip scar. I never thought I would have to take it easy to sit, to walk, to walk up the stairs. But I took it step by step, literally. And I'm forever grateful for God's healing. When I came out of hospital, I was focused on my recovery. And also the fact that our wedding <laughs> was taking place three months later in October 2020. It was a COVID wedding. Bojo, sorry, Boris Johnson, um, kept it interesting by announcing two weeks before our wedding that it went from 30 guests down to 15, meaning we couldn't have all of our friends and family. But for us, we both wanted to still get married. I had emergency alterations on my wedding dress, as you can imagine, one way of losing weight. Uh, we moved into our first rental house. Luckily, I got everyone else to do the heavy lifting whilst I made the cups of tea. Do you know, whenever I look back, I just think, how? 
but it had to be God. We were praying for strength and each step going, okay, God. And it wasn't what we imagined or prayed for, but we chose to trust God. Sadly, I was experiencing increasing hot flushes, night sweats, my mood, uh, my mood, insomnia, anxiety, hair loss got progressively worse and I couldn't, I found myself, I couldn't function in day-to-day life. Along with persistent symptoms and various scans and tests, nine months later, in February 2021, at the age of 27, I was told that my, my remaining only ovary was failing. The trauma from the removal of the cyst was too much and I had POI and was going through premature menopause. POI stands for premature ovarian insufficiency, which basically means that your ovary, my ovary, um, isn't producing the vital hormones that are needed for brain, bone, heart health, and of course, fertility. I was told on the phone by the consultant, because again, we were in lockdown, that I was unable to have my own children as my ovary was unlikely to recover and the symptoms were indicators that I was going through menopause. I'm aware (laughs) that might be one of the first times the word menopause has been spoken about in church. And even though it's a mystery to most, it isn't to God. So hallelujah. Over the last 18 months, I've had to process this life-changing news with the amazing support and love of Andrew, my life group, especially Grace and the women, the cherished team for the prayer and their love, for my closest friends and family to be in kind. I've had to adjust my lifestyle and most importantly, I was prescribed hormone replacement therapy which I'll be taking for the rest of my life. If I'm totally honest, I didn't turn to, didn't really turn to God in the beginning after my diagnosis. If anything, I distanced myself and I tried to do things in my own strength. The diagnosis meant I was grieving my future hopes. I just got married and naturally was excited with what, what was meant to come or I thought was meant to come. I grieved the loss of my DNA and, my desi- and the desire of having my own family. I know God can heal. But what happens if this is just part of his plan for me? You know, he gives and he takes away. I held on to the anger over the injustice of being misdiagnosed. I kept thinking, but only this or only that. And I was totally flummoxed and frustrated over the lack of awareness and teaching about menopause and infertility from when we were at school and now to the taboo all around it. I felt despair when I discovered I had to fight to get my prescription and care, as sadly, a lot of medical professionals don't know much about premature menopause or menopause in general. It was only three to four months down the line that I started therapy and started and found talking about it that I was able to start articulating and able to process the grief. It challenged my way of what I believed being a woman would be. I thought womanhood equaled motherhood. I was able to put words to my pain and brokenness and in turn helped me being honest with God rather than just praying and just going, because I didn't know what to say. Obviously, both can, God can take both. He has big shoulders. Most of the time, I had to remind myself to keep my gaze on God and remember 
about all of his faithfulness, especially in the hospital and the recovery and getting married and all of that, that really hectic time. I know, well, I knew God loved me and he had a good plan. What I was experiencing wasn't good, um, but I had that phrase, God is good all the time and all the time, God is good. So what does it mean? What does that mean for me now? Well, physically, I still struggle with symptoms. I will do. Um, but luckily, the HRT that gives me the hormones means that I'm able to feel function. <laughs> so I still struggle with uh, some brain fog and anxiety and mind blanks, um, only when I'm sort of nervous and stressed. Uh, practically, I have to track my symptoms and I have to trust God for um, the provision because I don't know if you guys have recently seen in the news uh, about the HRT shortages across the, um, across the nation. That affected me. Um, a lot of women that I was speaking to were only able to get a month's prescription at a time. Uh, God blessed me and he gave me three months. So it meant that I... Didn't, I don't have to worry about it for another three months. But it's really scary. I'm going off script. It's really scary when your life goes from being really rubbish, getting this... It's like a diabetic if you took away their insulin. And it was basically that situation with me. And it didn't feel like the government was being particularly supportive. But praise God, I got it. Emotionally, well, I'm still up and down, to be expected. Um, but I am as I said, very much supported by my husband and learning that even if I get triggered in any way and if the anger rises, um, especially as we live in a society where people like to ask you about the next stage of your life, so if you're dating someone or if you're not dating someone, you're like, are you seeing someone? And if you're dating someone, when are you getting married? Um, and when you get married, when are you having kids, etc., etc. So I'm learning to give that to God and trust in him and he's working through that within me spiritually life has been loud and full-on to say the least but God has been whispering and reassuring me that hope that my hope is in him my life is redeemed I know God is faithful I can turn to him I worship and I serve because I love him and he is worthy, not because I think I'm, I'm, I'm amazing or anything like that. If I'm honest, I still have hot flushes and mind blanks when I'm leading worship. That's why a lot of the time I have my hair up, just to prevent any sudden, sudden heat changes. Um, and at times, I'm going to be totally honest, I thought maybe I shouldn't be leading, maybe I shouldn't do this. But whenever I do... And before I lead, I always say, God, for your glory. And God always turns up. His spirit always turns up. And that's all I've got to do. And that's what my life is. God boasts in our weaknesses. I also believe that I'm incredibly creative. So for me, I am raising my voice. Um, I'm using my creative gift. And one way of doing that, I um, back in February... Uh, 2021 I created a social media and Instagram page um, where I share my journey I reach out to other women who are in a similar situation and um, I create <laughs> I laugh I just I'm just my crazy self I create reels that raise awareness to people but most importantly 
I've had the amount of women that have reached out to me to say that they don't feel alone is just amazing because that really resonates with me. Being 29 and being menopausal um, can feel quite lonely. So um, along with my Instagram, I also had the opportunity to share my story with a journalist and um, that got published in the Daily Mail online. Um, it also got published in the New York Post and a couple of other translations in French and Spanish. I wouldn't recommend those because one of them said that I was a guy. I don't think that really works. But I'll leave that to you. If you guys want to Google my name, put menopause and knock yourself out, it's a good giggle. We did. We had a good giggle in bed. Um, so, so there we go. But the main reason why I'm sharing the story, as I said, God's still working through it all and it is heavy and I get that. Um, but it's just to be honest with you because you are the part of God's family. Um, but also I know that other women and other men like would have been affected by maybe a similar situation. Um, and I just want to be honest and say, I'm here if you want to talk and pray. Um, I'm going to be leading the song, otherwise I would have been like, come up to me and worship. I'm leading worship. So um, after the service, and not even just this week, if it takes you time, then you can always, church suite, plug church suite again, get my number and please, please reach out. And I just feel that God has made it my passion that in this time, that I can stand along other side, uh, along the side of other women that may be going through something similar and just pray it through because I don't have the answers. I don't know what God's got planned for the next bit, but I'm just going to trust him. It's just incredible testimony isn't it of just honesty and God's faithfulness in his hands the, the worship team you can start to come back up we've throughout this series we've been talking about how God is able to turn all things to good for those who love him that good sometimes we have an idea of what we think that good should be but God is the one who he knows. And we've got to trust him. And we, you know, we lift up Hannah to the Lord and we lift each of us to the Lord. And we've got to trust him that just because the good that we think he should do doesn't transpire, that doesn't mean that he's abandoned you. That doesn't mean that he's left you. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you. That doesn't mean that he, he's forsaken you. Actually, throughout this book, throughout the Bible, throughout our lives, throughout this church, I know there is testimony after testimony that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. You can trust him. So let's stand together. And um, why don't we just take some time, I think it would be good for us to take some time to pray. Um, and that might, so during this time, maybe you can start to string. Um, I just want to give you a moment to pray. And that might be for a number of things. One is you might want to pray for yourself. Um, either for the first time 
or for the hundredth time, you might just want to receive God's redemptive plan in your life, his grace, his goodness. How can you do that? You can just do that by opening up your, your heart to him and in your heart just praying, Lord, will you fill my life again? Jesus, will you speak to me today? Would you help me to know that you are real and that you are good? So you can just take a moment by yourself. Just you can start doing that now, just in your heart. For others of you, you might want to lift a situation, a circumstance, a person or people to God and just lay it to him again. Say, Lord, I, this is difficult and I don't know what your plan is in this, but help me to know your, your faithfulness in my life. Help me to know that you are here, that you're with me, you're walking through this. I believe that God wants to fill people today with his spirit. I believe that he wants to tell, he wants you to know that he is with you. He hasn't abandoned you, that he's, he's got you. Ask him for faith in the waiting, in this period where you don't know how it's going to turn out. And then others of you, hey, you might want to pray for someone else for that too. You might want to pray for the church. You might want to pray for our community. You might want to pray for all the marginalised people in our society, the refugees, those who are on the margins, those who aren't welcomed in. Let, let us be a people who are like Salmon and Boaz and Joseph and Jesus, who welcome in the outsider, who don't worry about our own status, who are happy for that to decrease in order for them to be honoured and dignified and lifted up. Father, we lift all these things to you. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you just come and sweep through wherever people are at, wherever the thing is that we, each of us need to pray for. Lord, help us to know your hand in it all. Lord, for those who just need to know your love and your, your care and your attention on them today. Again, I pray, fill them with your Holy Spirit. For those of us who are going through difficult circumstances and situations, Lord, we trust, Lord, that you are moving and working in the fabric of our very lives, just as you have done in Amy's life, just as you've done throughout Ruth and Naomi's life, just as you do throughout our lives. Lord, we trust that you are at work. Lord, help us to have faith in that. Help us to, to know that you are, you are working. Lord, even though we have desires and plans for our lives, Lord, help us to trust in your timing and in your outcomes. Help us to see, Lord God, that you are working to good things in our life. Help us to, uh, to, to, to persevere in the challenge, to persevere in the trials, to, to keep our eyes focused on you and stepping into all that you've called us to. Help us not to back off. Help us not to step away. Help us, Lord God, like Ruth, to be, to be committed to the people of God, to be committed to trusting in you, to be committed to seeing and watching you work things out in our lives. Lord, Lord I pray for all those people in our society who feel marginalised, who feel on the edge, who feel outsiders, who feel like they don't belong. Lord, I pray, help us be a people who have a spirit of, of redemption, who have a spirit of Boaz and Salmon. Help us to be a people who are willing to draw people in, to, to not look at their situation, but to look at their personhood, to look at their humanity, to care and to love and to honour and to dignify. Lord, we know it costs. 
Lord, we know it costs to redeem others. We know it, it takes a lot out of us. It takes time and effort and energy and money and resource. And yet, Lord, help us to be a people who are willing to support, who are willing to help, who are willing to reach out and encourage others, I pray. Lord, move through the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.